Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to episode 131 of the podcast that explores our place in time. In an ongoing drama of trying to get the next awesome conversation with Eric Davis out on this feed, I just want to update everybody and let you know that my back has been in a pretzel all week after working a double last week at the Santa Fe Institute and getting some extremely cool conversations recorded for the other podcast that I host, uh, SFI's Complexity Podcast. Uh, I'm really, really excited to share those with you here soon. But as a reward to everybody's patience, I will probably try and get the Eric Davis episode out ahead of the normal schedule so that y'all can enjoy it before Thanksgiving. Anyway... This week, I have an extremely cool conversation, uh, a Future Fossils Live that was recorded in Minneapolis last month with two old and very dear friends of mine, Jessica Nielsen, whom I met at Burning Man in 2009 uh, when she was a neuroscience PhD student, and Link Swanson, who is now her PhD student working on psychedelics and perception and cognition. And the two of them are up at Minneapolis, where I was last month doing this live taping and playing a concert and uh, hanging out with a really robust and awesome tight knit community, the Psychedelic Society of Minneapolis. Being a live taping and being the honored guest for this community, I think I talked a little bit more than I normally do or probably should have, so I'm going to keep this intro short for you. But before we dive into this extremely cool conversation about novelty and trauma and evolutionary selection, uh, a really all-scales kind of chat, I want to give a special thanks to everybody who has been supporting Future Fossils and my other creative work on Patreon, including new subscribers Naomi Most, Morton Tundle, John Merrills, and also the people who have been buying my new music on Bandcamp, including Darren Steinberg, Steve Fisher, and Alex Feldman. All of you are just wonderful people. Uh, so are the other 150 folks supporting the show, helping me keep it independent and ad-free while they reap the extensive rewards of a, a rather lush backstage feed. This is the season, you know. And uh, if you all are grateful for what Future Fossils brings to your life, I hope that you will consider heading over to patreon.com and uh, chipping in to the tune of a few bucks a month. That's money that allows me to take time off from my day job and the intense podcast production schedule I have going on over there to keep this flame going over here and to make sure that putting out six plus episodes a month between the two of them doesn't just break me. Also, it's been a while since I brought this up, but it is no less true for Future Fossils than it is for any other podcast that reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts makes an enormous difference to the discoverability of this program. I don't really try too hard to promote this show. I mean, the quality is more important to me than the reach, but I'm constantly having to remind myself that reach matters when the point is service. 
So even if you're broke as a joke, there's a really easy and helpful way to make sure that this show gets into the ears and minds of everyone who will benefit from it. And that's to leave a glowing five-star review about things like how much progress I've made in guest audio quality and conversation depth over the last few years, uh, or, you know, whatever it is that you care to say. And now that I'm done panhandling for your social proof and fiscal support, thank you so much for listening. And I really hope that you enjoy this episode and the ideas therein as much as I do. Stay tuned in the weeks to come for conversations with Eric Davis, as well as with author Alex Shikard, travel writer Rolf Potts, philosopher Brian Swim, and many others. And with that, enjoy and I'll... See you next time. Greetings, future fossils. Uh, I'm Michael Garfield, and I haven't been to Minneapolis in a decade. Uh, actually, longer than a decade, July of 2009. So well, it we're is... very glad to have you. Thank you for making the trek. Thank you. Yeah, this is a pleasure. Um, I'm super glad to hopefully meet all of you today and uh, that we have this opportunity to bring psychedelic science into the digital archives that is Future Fossils part podcast. The premise of this show is based on an old outgoing answering machine message that I left, encouraging people to submit their audio fossils to my museum. A little paleontology joke. Uh, and what it became uh, in conversation with my friend, the Tea Fairy, who some of you may know as this legendary psychonaut and Burning Man celebrity, uh, flow artist and really important figure in the psychedelic harm reduction community. She inspired me with this idea that, you know, there are more people studying ancient Athens now than we're living in ancient Athens. And if this, if this continues, if we don't blow ourselves up in one way or another, then we have to act on the assumption that the largest audience is as yet unborn, that we, uh, that, that the things that are going on right now at this, at this moment in history of this important transitional moment where we either come together as a planet or don't, um, that this will be an area of intense historical and anthropological scrutiny from our like post-human descendants or whatever finds these conversations inscribed in a diamond on the moon or whatever. So the, you know, the, the thing is that this, these conversations, it's kind of a weird paradox to be doing a live episode of this show because the entire premise is that these conversations are really for the unborn uh, to understand what it was like to be alive today. And so in honor of that, I'm really excited to have a conversation about psychedelic science and uh, everything around that topic because I think the situation that we're living through now will be kind of unthinkably strange to people in a hundred years, you know, like identity politics. I'm an octopus, right? Cognitive liberty. I print my own drugs. Like I don't understand how, you know, those poor fucks once upon a time. So 
anyway, this is my hope. And, and with that, it is, uh, my extreme pleasure to introduce to you people you probably already know, uh, Dr. Jessica Nielsen and Link Swanson at the University of Minnesota, who are both doing very interesting things about and with the mind. And uh, why don't you two introduce yourselves and tell tell the folks a little bit about who you are and and what you're working on, and then we can go from there. And uh, this is not an interview thing. This is a conversation thing. So if at any point anyone wants to put their hand up, that's cool. And that's one of the perks of this this setting, and I welcome that. So, I'll go first. Um, so I'm Jessica Nielsen. I think most people here know me, but for those listening on the podcast, um, I'm an assistant professor at the University of Minnesota. I have a joint appointment in the Department of Psychiatry and the Institute for Health Informatics. I my PhD is actually in neuroscience. And I've had a longstanding interest in psychedelics, um, but also machine learning, which is actually what I was recruited to the university to do, was to apply machine learning approaches to understand mental health disorders. And so that's one half of my lab where I do some really interesting computational neuroscience. Um, but the other half of my lab is focused on mechanistic neuroscience research into psychedelics, and particularly how psychedelics affect our ability to understand our world around us and uh, past traumas that we've lived with and whether we can actually um, use it not only as a microscope for the mind, but also as a, a way to try and heal from some of these deeply ingrained um, traumas that we've experienced throughout our lives, um, which some of the psychedelic research is kind of showing that these might be beneficial. So I'm really interested in looking at the mechanism of that and how we can learn more about what psychedelics are doing for the brain and, and what they're appropriate for in terms of treatment for mental health disorders. And um, about a year ago, I met Link Swanson. Um, I actually read his paper called The Unifying Theory of Psychedelic Experiences and thought he was a professor at the university and um, was excited to collaborate. And it turns out he was a student in need of a mentor. So that's how sort of our collaboration started. And I'll sort of dovetail that onto Link and he can tell you his story. Hey, everybody. I'm Link Swanson. Um, I am a Minnesota native and grew up in north Minneapolis here, um, north of Minneapolis in a rural setting. And uh, I've been interested in philosophy and psychology and neuroscience um, for a good two decades now, since my teen years. And uh, I'm in a PhD program in cognitive science at the University of Minnesota and I'm working with Jessica and I'm working with others who are trying to understand uh, perception and cognition in the brain uh, in all varieties. And I'm also a philosopher and I work with uh, topics in philosophy of mind and most recently perception and hallucination have been my kind of main topics of interest in writing and philosophy. So thanks for having me here. So that's the, the perception hallucination continuum. Right. Yeah, that's what I'm, I, I do argue for that it is a continuum. It's not, uh, common to think of, uh, perception and hallucination as sort of overlapping in any way. There's a, kind of a default assumption that when you perceive the world, you're perceiving reality. You're not making any of it up. Um, and it's not illusory in any way. But when you really look at how perception works and, and just in the everyday life and animals and in, normal waking states, uh, it's filled with illusions and um, arguably a lot of hallucinations in your everyday waking perception as well. So um, I pick that apart and argue against this longstanding trend that perception is, is has like this grip on objective reality 
um, that other states don't have and that that's what marks it. And I argue that, um, that that's mistaken. And I advance another uh, proposal for how to tell if something is real or not. Ooh, I want to hear this. <laughs> Uh, the criteria are fully subjective and so meaning that they are experiential. They're the properties of the experience. Uh, the experience is stable or successful or in keeping with the status quo. Um, and those are all phenomenological properties of the experience. They're not, they're not, uh, criterion that have something to do with objective reality at all. But if it, if it has certain properties, then we can say it's real. And that's what we want to say is real. So that leaves a lot of room for um, different mental states to be considered more real or less real, or again, like a continuum, a gradation of of uh, veridicality, if you will. So what do you do with something like the the stock market that's not stable but is successful? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So um, right. So the criteria that I proposed were sort of loose examples, but the successful part is is sort of important. Uh, but it's like if an experience has one of these three or, or one or more of these three properties in different degrees, then it's uh, more real <laughs> than an experience that doesn't. Um, and it's it's uh, a, a very uh, I'm intervening in 300 years of philosophy perception of Western <laughs> philosophy. And so it's it's very uh, tied to that context. I want to take a kind of like Harlem Globetrotters backspin kind of thing and try and pass this to Jess here. Uh, but in order to do so, I have to do a little fancy footwork. We're going to end in trauma, right? But we're going to start in uh, me and my friends at the lake near uh, the University of Kansas where I went to school, tripping mushrooms in like 2003, and ending up in a thicket by the woods. And I present this to you as a, as a case of your perception hallucination mm-hmm. continuum mm-hmm. that uh, I, I, I had realized that there was a way that I could get myself out of a sticky situation, which was that all three of us had managed to end up in a clearing by the lake that was surrounded by acacia and uh, like thick with spiders and spider webs. And so it was the the visual uh, distortions of psilocybin made it very difficult to tell where the trees were and were not because of the the forking pattern of the thorns of the trees and the the pattern of the branching of the spider webs until i realized that what had been stable for me all day was this hexagonal pattern that appeared to be the edge of a cube sort of like projected out of an indeterminate space in my visual field. And that it was tiled and that if we looked that we could find our way out of the clearing by following the hexagons rather than the octagons, which were the spider webs that if there was, it was an angle that it's like all other things being equal, like not being able to rely on depth perception or whatever, that we were able to get out through retemplating everything by saying, okay, like rather than looking for clear space versus patterned space, I'm going to look for, you know, just follow the hexagons out and you won't get like covered in spider webs and stabbed up. And I feel like <laughs> something like that maybe might be uh, how we navigate an era of floating signifiers where all of 
you know, so much of the, the stable, reliable world that we were sort of given the expectation would continue indefinitely has become increasingly frayed. And we're now in this, this period. I find myself talking about this on the show all the time. So that's, it's a, it's a, a stable vein of, of instability that we're at this point now where we're, we're having to come up with new ways to verify information. We're coming, we're having to come up with new, new ways to, to, tr- to verify our, our, are human and non-human sources and that lack of stability. And I've talked about this with maps clinician, Saj Razvi, that this, this lack of stability is a kind of trauma. Like it's, it, it, you know, it creates uh, for us. I think all of us alive right now are dealing with this thing where we're having to come up with our own local answers to who should we believe? What should we trust? Uh, what really matters? How do we value things? The, the structures that would ordinarily deliver those things to us, it's gotten super complicated. So I don't know. I, I think there's, there's like a topic at the intersection. I'm just going to like drop this in your lap, Jessica, <laughs> that it's, it's kind of like connected to the whole like intermittent reward thing. Like if you don't know when the reward is coming, you're like more and more addicted because you're more and more desperate. And so, like, I think, I, I feel this sense just looking at the, you know, social media and the news that, uh, we're, we're becoming sort of more and more desperate to cling to something, you know, whether that's a charismatic political figure or a way of life, a lifestyle that we can buy ourselves into. Um, and these are all evidences. This is all evidence of trauma. Like, this is evidence of the trauma of the loss of, stable ground. Now that's not to say that there's not something that something better won't, you know, weave itself into being in place of that. But it does seem like there's that all that stuff I was just talking about is uh where your two research tracks join, you know, in terms of like the, the relevance to everything in in our time is the question of what is and is not real and what do we do about it? Uh, and, and so like, there's a way I think that we can think of this as you're helping us orient ourselves amidst this massive collective psychedelic experience that is the internet. But, um, I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> oh, that's a lot to unpack. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out what point I want to address. <laughs> you could just bite off. A, I don't care. Yeah. Well, the thing that was, um, that stuck with me was when you were talking about, um, trying to look for stable patterns and, and comfort and what that means for trauma. I feel like the closer I get, I get some yeah, feedback. Yeah, they're good. Okay. So in terms of trauma, it's kind of interesting. Everybody has a different idea of what trauma is. I mean, clinically and caveat, I'm not a clinician. I just, I do work in the space of neuroscience of trauma, but I'm not a, a psychiatrist um, or a, a medical doctor. But when it comes to trauma, like there's a clinically defined traumatic experience, which is when your life is threatened. And the situation you're talking about is more like adversity and stress, that things are becoming continually less stable and more confusing and more foreign. And it's really, I think, what we've been exposed to as children primes us for how we deal with that kind of adversity as an adult. And that's why a lot of people in the trauma space talk about when you have some kind of childhood trauma in your past, depression and PTSD and addiction, a lot of these disorders are a lot harder to treat because it's so ingrained in your psyche and your sense of self and how you respond to stress and adversity. Um, and so 
intersecting that with psychedelics, psychedelics are really great at getting us um, more accustomed to dealing with bizarre things and things that would otherwise seem adverse or stressful because they're kind of uncomfortable and weird and strange, but you're doing so in a context that maybe feels a little bit more fun or safe or supportive or connected in some way, depending on the experience. It can also be traumatizing in itself, depending on the set and setting, but that's kind of a tangent that I don't want to go down right now. Um, but I, I feel like being exposed to adversity and trauma actually upregulates the same types of growth factors in the brain that help us that, that, that psychedelics do. So you kind of being in this like intense space makes your brain actually more able to change and whether you're going to change in a good way or a bad way is kind of up to you and what you're exposed to after that. So I think psychedelics have the power to crack open that potential. So does trauma. Um, and really trying to find the intersection of those two and figuring out how can we do this responsibly to not only figure out all the aspects and facets of trauma, but also the best ways to move forward and heal from it with psychedelics or other healing modalities. Psychedelics aren't the end-all, be-all cure for trauma, but they're a promising frontier. So I don't know if that addressed mm -hmm. points. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that. I like those points. Um, and I think that definitely our, our minds, our brains are... Um, traumatized by what states of great uncertainty and when there's a lot of uncertainty and not a lot of um sort of stability in the input and in the system then um trauma can occur there's a if you want to go into uh, sources there's a really interesting paper called a tale of two receptors and it's talking about the serotonin 1a and 2a receptor and that um there's a hypothesis that 2A upregulation is nature's way of dealing with like massive uh, emergency type of trauma and that the plasticity that comes from that um, is effective in like big traumatic experiences for an organism. And then the 1A receptor is like for responding to uh, ongoing little stressors. Uh, so that's just a, a tidbit that sort of um, dovetails a little bit there. Um Back to the stability uh, and sort of regularity. Oh, you like that, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, uh, I was. I, it, it made me think of this phenomenon called perceptual destabilization, and um, you can flash certain stimuli, uh, auditory or visual, in someone's you know, just normal waking person. And these stimuli, they deviate from the natural statistics of the natural world. So the, the statistical regularities that are in nature, um, you flash stimuli that are not in congruence with nature. And pretty soon your entire perceptual field falls apart and you basically enter an altered state. And it's dreamlike and there can be kaleidoscopic imagery. And this, so the, the brain can be induced into going into these uh, destabilized states by just changing the inputs to be not what it normally uh, would encounter in nature. And I think that's fascinating and it speaks to how brains, minds are wired to make sense of input and to, to keep to keep their uh, system and state stable. Now the, the interesting question that I'll throw back to, to the two of you is like, so psychedelics obviously disrupt some of that stability, but why is that good? Why is that not uh, traumatic? Obviously, sometimes it is, but um, why does that lead to the healing of trauma when you're disrupting the stability of of uh, consciousness and perception and cognition and neural patterns? 
I feel like that's the million dollar question, yeah. you know, because it's there's something about that destabilization that somehow in the right set and setting becomes this transformative mystical experience that makes you feel connected and one with everything. And that doesn't seem very destabilizing. So right. it might be a different mechanism. Hopefully we'll figure that out. I mean, it's destabilizing to capitalism. Yeah. <laughs> I, True. So my background is in evolutionary theory, and for the last year I've been working in Santa Fe at the Santa Fe Institute, which is a, a dedicated to complex systems research. And I've been I've been very lucky to just drink from the fire hose of the research going on there as a science communication professional. And one of the things that's become increasingly clear to me around this notion of uh, evolvability, like the ability, if you think about intelligence in a general way, there is like the intelligence that each of us consciously execute through our decisions and our strat, our strategy. There's the unconscious intelligence of the body. There's the intelligence that, you know, manifests in our social systems and the architecture of civilization. Uh, intelligence is not limited to a substrate, at least in the way that it's mathematically understood. And, Strangely, uh, the, the president, David Krakauer, has, has pointed out that the mathematical equations used to describe inferential learning and evolution are the same. They were independently discovered. So if you think about evolution as like entities attempting to navigate a landscape, I don't know, some of you may be familiar with this, but like a, a rugged or fitness landscape, you know, where you're trying to climb, like the machine learning algorithm, you're trying to climb to the the optimum, you know, you're trying to find the best fit for you in the environment that you're in, but the landscape itself is always morphing, right? So the, that's the, the instability that uh, we build into it. Now, one of the external professors at the Santa Fe Institute, this guy Andreas Wagner from Zurich, uh, has been doing work on the origin of novelty, there's your Terrence McKenna drink right there, uh, in uh, the origins of novelty in the evolutionary process. And it turns out that many of our, many of the mutations that we, that occur, you know, they're not occurring in response to the environment. They, well, they're occurring in response to a local environment. In a, in a way, like mutations appear to be the, the gene regulatory networks trying to find the, the simplest, most efficient way to express what they are doing. In the same way that this attempt to connect the dots has already taken a, a, a sort of unfortunately long path. But what, what they're finding is that when you stress, for example, a bacterial colony, mm -hmm. that these mutations that are neither selected for nor against uh, create a kind of background pre-adaptive pre uh, readiness and that Mutations seem to happen more when the cells are stressed out because they're basically preparing for a number of solutions or scenarios that they can't anticipate. And so on the evolutionary fitness landscape, these pre-adaptive mutations uh, in some cases create little bridges where the bacteria is like adjacent to the next step it needs to make. It's only one degree away from it's like it all it's all it's left is that one like strike of inspiration like the next mutation creates the whole thing that it needs to survive and so they find that stressing the population this should be obvious to anybody who uh has like tracked 
the quality of popular music through like <laughs> really excellent, easy periods of history and like really difficult, messy periods of history. Like I remember the night that Trump got elected, I was like, we're going to have awesome music for the next four to eight years, you know, and it's this, it's, I think, I think that the answer to this question is that like you're saying, like there is a, there is an important meaningful difference between stress that spurs the system, be it an individual person or a society or a bacterial culture or whatever into greater creative, curious expression, you know, that's like causing us to reach out into other possibilities into what uh, Stuart Kaufman called the adjacent possible. Um, but there is this other part, which is that we, we only have adjacent possible surrounds what we've got. And like, if it's too much change, yeah. then it's worthless to us. Like, you know, you can add a certain amount of fire and like you get a thing or you can just burn it to the ground, you know, like you get, a, a metabolism. You can cook your food or you can destroy your house, you know? And I think that we're, we're kind of at that point where it's like, the question is how much is too much? Yeah. That uh, I'm glad you brought up novelty um, because that's another natural question that comes out of talking about like this um, sort of polarities between uh, let's just take a, a human organism. Uh, it can be very stable and very rigid and very safe and very routine on the one end of the uh, polarity, and then on the other end, uh, extreme novelty and uncertainty. And it seems that if you go too far toward extreme rigidity and state and stability, things don't feel good or things don't work out well for the organism. But you go too far to the other end of just constant novelty uh, or you know massive uncertainty, then that's also not good. Um, and when you think about <clears throat> if we were to just jump in or if any of us in our lives were just to jump into extreme novelty and uncertainty by, you know, quitting your job and just living in a van and driving somewhere or whatever you want. That sounds really nice. Yeah, that just, it, does, it sounds <laughs> nice. But right, if you, if, if you think about like just drastic life change, maybe, maybe you didn't self-select it. Maybe you were you were fired and then you had to live in a family. Yeah. <laughs> so, I think that's a key difference is whether it's a choice or whether it's something that was thrust upon you. Yeah, that's good. Like novelty seeking, like um, it, there, there's a lot of arguments against sort of that novelty is good, but then it's at the same time, it's like you've got uh, this drive that many organisms seem to have to seek novelty. And uh, it seems like, balancing periods of extreme uncertainty and novelty uh, in a safe environment with periods of stability and certainty and safety is uh, is the sort of pendulum that tends to be uh, sought after. But like getting a balance between massive uncertainty and extreme boring stability and rigidity is, is the tough part. And it seems like that's kind of the magical ticket to <laughs> a lot of different healthy states of organisms and like adaptive or, or uh, successful states and organisms. So well, I would say that, I mean, that's kind of how biological systems operate. That's homeostasis. You know, you sure. want, you want the adversity just enough to get you to learn something so you can kind of branch outside your comfort zone and grow mm-hmm. and learn. Uh, but you don't want to be in that state all the time. And right. You also don't want to be in a sense. I mean, you want to have a happy medium, you know, kind of a continuum between the two, but optimal, uh, ultimately you kind of want to stay in the middle 
and kind of that like balance between the two extremes. I mean, that's kind of what most systems strive for mm-hmm. is homeostasis. But every once in a while, we kind of need to push ourselves because I think we can get stuck in sort of that safe space where we don't want to rock the boat too much. But then I think that then tends towards then getting into this like quiescent, stable state where that it's comfortable, be, yeah. but then you're not really making any progress. And and sometimes that's okay if that's like, okay, I'm done. I don't want to grow anymore. Yeah. And that's a choice for some people. But, you know, I think other people want to make that decision to maybe push the boundaries a little bit, but then sometimes it can go too far. So just kind of, you know, finding your own personal balance between those two. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to think about what the... Uh, what the driver is to, to seek novelty or to seek a state where there's less stability in, in your mental experience. And, and all, speaking of biological organisms that are non-human, uh, lots of animals will seek out psychedelic plants. And, uh, there's, it's, it's a, it's an important question as to why do they do this? What, what would, what benefit would it be? And they don't do it just for food. Um, and, uh, is it just for fun? <laughs> these squirrels and things, but they are put in a vulnerable spot. So is that what would be adaptive about a squirrel eating a bunch of mushrooms? And then it, you can look it up on YouTube. They wander around in the street and whatever. And so this seems like they're putting themselves (laughs) in danger. And, um, but it does also seem that like animals could be, uh, could, could benefit quite a bit from some, uh, sort of, destabilized mental states and the way that i like to think about this is that that same squirrel that put himself into a vulnerable state where you know predators and cars and whatever actually might benefit because this in in its in its rigid state in its normal state it could be ignoring a lot of its affordances you know food reproduction safety there could be a lot of opportunities in this animal's environment that in its normal waking state it's just sort of focused on doing its thing but then either during or after its self-induced psychedelic experience that bringing that novelty in and shaking things up a bit could allow it to potentially see things in its environment that are and i think that 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 same back and forth uh is true of of humans as well and that's part of the sort of creativity kinds of reports or uh, ingenuity and things like that, or even just seeing insights into, you know, personal insights into the personal issues. And But the balancing definitely is, is a question of great importance. So this uh, made me think of a conversation you and I were having about city animals. Versus, For the raccoons. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And where they're like city animals are kind of a little bit more adaptable. They're exposed to a lot of weird stuff. They learn how to harness traffic to help, the, you know, get food. And and then those that are out in the rural situations, like they're not exposed to that novelty. And so they're not forced to think outside the box of how to like optimize their situation. And so, you know, that could be happening, happening with humans, if humans are a little too isolated. And what are you saying about rural humans? <laughs> I just mean, you know, they're, like they're, they're exposed just... to fewer bizarre sure. experiences yeah, that would challenge their yeah. world model. Right. Yeah. And this is the, this was all based on a, uh, what Jessica's bringing up was based on this episode. I listened to of stuff to blow your mind podcast about urban animals in which they said that urban raccoons spent longer trying to open a box containing a novel food source, whereas rural animals might check it out or they might avoid it entirely. That there was there's something about a drive to pursue puzzles and weirdness that comes in the city because 
the number of interactions you're having with unfamiliar situations is is much greater because of the network of the city. I've got a I've got a quick sort of critical thought about that. Is it just because it's weird and novel, or is it because the urban animals are exposed to human objects, and then and the rural ones aren't? And it, it do you see what I'm saying? So like yeah, that they're object, still, that they're object still human that objects, to... and I mean they have trash cans and cars and houses and stuff. There's just a yeah. higher density and there's a higher variety. Yeah, yeah. So you know I think about this the question of why animals do. Like the why why an ant, a squirrel might eat mushrooms? Yeah, that's an um, important question. There, for the record, by the way, there is a fantastic Werner Herzog narrated dinosaur documentary called Dinotasia, um, in which a, a a sauropod, like a long necked dinosaur, eats mushrooms and has a psychedelic experience and gets chased by predators while it's tripping and it's it's fabulous. I highly recommend finding this. It's an unusually gruesome dinosaur documentary where like dinosaurs are biting each other's arms off and stuff. So it's like great for the kids. So this thing about why animals trip, I think, I mean, first of all, let's get rid of the human exceptionalism, right? There was a while there where it seemed like the last bastion of human uniqueness was that we eat mushrooms on purpose, Mm -hmm. which is clearly bullshit. Mm -hmm. So there's this guy at Penn state, Richard Doyle, who, I deeply admire, he's written a number of great books about uh, rhetorical transformations in the life sciences. And the latest, Darwin's Pharmacy, is an argument building on Terence McKenna's stoned ape hypothesis that pushing ourselves into these novel states of consciousness increases the burden upon the psychonaut to communicate these experiences. And so he uses as a data set the Arrowhead trip report archives and says that the one consistent thing is what he called graphomaniacal claims to ineffability. People come back and write page after page about this thing. They're like, it's impossible to explain. And that, but I, but I must explain it. I just right. Have to. And so it's the complexity of the experience that they're having that challenges all the categories in a way that, okay. So like maybe every once in a while you have a bad trip and somebody burns out and that's the trauma that you, you brought up earlier. But on average, his argument is that this was leading us to eloquence, that it was increasing the number of evolutionarily relevant things that we had to talk about, and that as we got more and more eloquent, it became uh, one of these positive feedback loops like the peacock tail, where it was like our intelligence and our ability as communicators turned out to have all of these secondary benefits to our ability to cohere in social groups, and that being able to sing about tripping was like what made us human, basically. And I think that that's, you know, that there's something in that about, like you said, the affordance. The question is whether the helicopter rope into the next layer of being actually reaches low enough, low enough for us to grab or not. And then this gets to, I wanted to ask you how this is reflected in the work that you're, you're doing on mental illness. And like, you know, what, uh, there's a kind of a meta with the machine learning part of it too. But like, how do you how do you understand this in terms of the way that we understand sanity and the way that you're researching sanity or the lack thereof or like what yeah can you can you crystallize it well yeah so there? like in a sense I would say like like it I, obviously this is a gross oversimplification but it would seem as though the insane is like the brain trying to accomplish this move to uh, like. Who here is familiar with uh, like Robert Anton Wilson? Yeah, Chapel Perilous. 
this idea of like you're moving from one like the world that you understand and then everything starts connecting and making more and more sense and so you have to come up with a new world construction in order to navigate this like intensely synchronistic network of meaning that you realize things really are and that that's the that's the the gauntlet moment in your work as a psychonaut where you can either fall down the rabbit hole of paranoia and miss the point because obviously like if everything's connected you're implicated too you're you're part of the conspiracy but it's a failure of your brain to reconstruct itself at a at, you know to to restructure itself so as to include itself in the new world mode where metanoia is where the ego is folded over the outer world in such a way that that inside and outside cease to exist as concrete categorical you know, settings. And so that that's actually ontologically, that's actually more true, right? Like you are a folded cluster of cells that's folded over and over and over. And like, you can run a string through your mouth and anus and you're not, there isn't an inside and outside in that simple way. Right. And yet we insist on this. And so anyway, I don't know. I mean, now I sound crazy and you're the doctor. (laughs) Oh gosh. I'm just, I'm trying to figure out what to respond to. (laughs) You have such great um, long-winded questions. I appreciate that. Um, in terms of like researching mental illness, I guess it's just, I mean, again, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm coming at trying to understand mental illness as a neuroscientist and having a knack for recognizing patterns and complex systems. And just the more I dig into it, the more I feel like the way that psychiatry has been done and the way that we've been trying to understand the mind and mental illness has been pretty flawed and pretty categorical and based on subjective opinion and what someone says rather than like, there's not a blood test for schizophrenia, Mm. you know, there's not a blood test to say this is real or not. Then, but then there's also kind of this philosophical question of who are we to tell somebody what's real and, you know, or or what's seen. Well, it's just, I've been thinking about this in the context of psychedelic therapy for people with like psychosis and everyone's always saying it's not okay for that. And I think that's absolutely mostly true but then then there are anecdotes of people that claim that this helps them and that having a major mental illness is kind of a form of an altered state of consciousness which you know there there have been altered state of consciousness questionnaires developed specifically to measure this and they've been adapted to look at psychedelic states but ultimately it's very complex to try and figure out what's going on in someone's mind and as a society we're pathologizing mental illness we're saying it's not okay to be this way and so it's more about the person's quality of life and their social network and, and other aspects of their, you know, psychosocial status rather than like their symptoms, you know, that if somebody can manage their symptoms and have better quality of life and not be shamed by it, by the community, that then it's not something that they feel that they need to feel shame about or that they need to fix. Like I'm not someone that can be fixed. This is just who I am. And I just need to manage it with more grace and have it not impact my life. And so I just think trying to unpack all of that and understand what are these different mental illnesses and what is the best treatment for them is just, I don't know. I feel like we're just scratching the surface. Can we, can I back this up again and ask an extremely short question? Sure. So how are you actually studying mental illness with machine learning? Yeah. So, well, I mine existing data repositories that exist from completed clinical research stuff funded by the National Institute of Mental Health um, or other institutes that are looking at brain-based disorders. And then we apply various clustering algorithms and machine learning techniques onto that to try and derive 
patterns from all that complexity to see if there's subtypes of these disorders that are based on more than just subjective reports of what their symptoms are like, but looking at neuroimaging and cardiovascular function and other other things that you can measure in the body that, because I'm more of like a whole systems type of science system, a biologist. I really think that you need to have a multimodal approach to understand somebody rather than like, it's just this one domain. Don't but, just upload your brain, upload the whole thing. So it's really, I mean, but I'm at the limitation of finding data that exists um, out there in the world rather than having my own data to look at. And a lot of it is kind of flawed in terms of the bias of whoever collected the data and did the study. So we're kind of, you know, there's like limitations in what we can derive because it's all kind of based on the, the dogmatic principles that have been in, um, set up in psychiatry with the diagnostic um, and statistical manual for how mental disorders are diagnosed and really trying to use the existing data to get away from that. But all that existing data was developed under that dogmatic kind of principle. So I feel like we're identifying more robust subtypes of these disorders that then we can then do more rigorous science prospectively to ask them really important questions about what is actually driving this type of mental illness and what's the right therapy for it. So are, are we any closer to understanding the, the actual difference between psychedelic experience and schizophrenia at this point? Or I don't think so. Um, I, it's a topic I'd love to research more. It's, I mean, a lot of people thought that like a, a bad trip would be a, a clinical model of psychosis, but it turns out that's not entirely true because your brain somehow knows I took something rather than, you know, like this hallucination or this delusion or this thought didn't come from your mind. It came from a drug. And there is some awareness of that when you take a psychedelic versus when it's, you know, a, a clinical diagnosis of schizophrenia. Yeah. Okay. So the only way to study this is to dose people without their knowledge. Well, I think, we, I mean, we want to get at some of the, like the, no, that's not what we're talking about. Doing. Just for the record. No, right. Officially. Uh, no. Um, no, I mean, it has interesting overlaps. I think like one of the, one of the, I mean, the study we're planning is kind of looking at visual neuroscience and sort of like established paradigms and understanding visual neuroscience and how people per perceive incoming visual information. Um, and that has a lot of implications for things like schizophrenia, where they are having these, you know, delusions and these kind of weird visions. Um, but that's not really the point of our research is to understand that, but it could kind of have implications for our understanding of the mechanisms of these kinds of perceptual disorders. I've got some thoughts on the, the difference between states of psychosis and psychedelic states. I think that, as Jessica mentioned early on, there was a, an effort to use psychedelics to induce a state of psychosis, to sort of understand psychosis. Interestingly, that approach uh, was already happening before psychedelics came onto the Western scene. So they, it wasn't like they saw the mescaline state and they said, this is just like psychosis. Instead, it was like they were already on this search to try to use drugs to make people temporarily insane. And they were using like massive amounts of tea, <laughs> alcohol, barbiturates, other drugs that they were trying to do this with. So this was something that was already part of the research in the late 1800s. But really, and I, I, I touched a little bit on this on my Unifying Theories of Psychedelic Drug Effects paper, but the overlap between psychosis and the psychedelic state 
it's a lot of just terminological or overlap and there's really not a lot of evidence that they have much in common at all other than you use similar words to describe them words like perceptual distortion or delusions or hallucinations and those are things that those are words you can use to describe certain mental phenomena but that doesn't mean that just because you're using the same words that the mental phenomena are in any way related or I identical for that matter. Um, and I, I actually have a, a lot of suspicion over any real scientific or philosophical comparison between psychotic, chronic psychotic states and acute psychedelic states. Um, I really don't think that there's very much hard evidence or rationale to connect them in a meaningful way. Can I can I back this up a little bit yeah. and and press a little on the unifying yeah. theory of psychedelics because that sounds rather ambitious. Yeah, theories. Okay. And it's a review of other people's theories. So I'm I'm analyzing various other attempts to have a scientific theory of why these molecules produce these experiences in the brain, right? So you you've got a novel molecule and psilocybin or mescaline or something, and it produces novel experiences when it enters the brain. And then you want to have a way to say, like, oh, we know why that does that. Um, so various people have over the years, and I did a lot of historical work and then a lot of 21st century sort of neuroscience theories. So I cover some of those, and I pull out similarities and differences between them. And so I don't know if you have further questions about that. Yeah, it's not it's not like I have my own unifying theory of psychedelic drugs. Well, what are what are the commonalities? Like what what are the consistent yeah. points across? Because I'm looking for something stable, successful, and real. Yeah, here. yeah, so, right. So some of the some of the commonalities, in fact, they go all the way back to um, the early 20th century. Uh, was this idea of a filter that the brain has? Right. So um, biological systems have these constraints on them of how they how they produce experiences and there's there's certain experiences that they sort of narrow in on in in a in like a a constraint kind of way and they filter out the rest and so a lot of these early theories said that okay so the brain has this filter and psychedelics come in and sort of open up the reducing valve as aldous huxley put it um and there's so many other the ego tunnel from leary and and um there's there there are a lot of different ways of saying the brain has constraints on it and psychedelics lift those constraints so sort of like anything goes and that remains in 21st century neuroscience uh, there are three uh, sort of approaches that I highlight this integrated information theory uh, the entropic brain theory and predictive processing or rebus which is what it's now come to be called recently. But all of them basically have this underlying hypothesis that these constraints that are natural, uh, so talk about an organism and its environment, it can't just willy-nilly look at everything in its environment. Because something, if you're, if you're constantly just, ooh, what's that? Ooh, what's this? Oh, wonder about that. Predators will come and get you or competition will come and steal your resources. Um, so these filters or this constraint mechanism in the brain is sort of built to keep you on track for what is relevant to your life and to your survival and also to keep track of what has happened to you in the past. Oh, last time I 
walked on that trail, bad things happened. And if I walked on this trail, so I'm going to stick to this kind of trail or whatever. So, uh, trauma, I think can, uh, give a very strong prior belief into this system. Whereas like the world is not safe and things are out to get me. And I think that that can severely influence the, the constraints that are on the brain in that state. Right. And so psychedelic drugs get into the system and it does seem like in some way these constraints are lifted or expanded and the number of states that the brain can enter is expanded. And that has this sort of double edged effect, which you've already touched on between stability and, and uncertainty and novelty. And the double edged effect is that like, yes, you lose some of those constraints. So if those constraints were sort of pathological to you or maybe not serving you well, they're gone for a little while, maybe a few hours, maybe a week. And then you have some opportunity to sort of rewrite the constraints. And the constraints are essentially your background beliefs and expectations about yourself and, and reality. And when those become pathological uh, in in depression and PTSD and things like that, it's it's fairly clear that it's this rigid stable state that the brain has put itself in in response to some other uh, event when you can break that apart then you have the opportunity to sort of get a better or more successful or appropriate or healthy uh, rigidity to that but you also in the midst of that you put yourself into a vulnerable state so if anyone's tried to like make a sandwich at the L LSD peak or something like that. Like it's not as easy as it is to just make a sandwich in your normal waking state. Um, so my point in that is that these constraints help us to uh, do normal things and that taking them away is this, you know, sort of two sided thing uh, where you have trouble making a sandwich or doing other or forming a sentence or so on. Um, and, uh, yet on the other hand, you've also dropped the things that weren't, uh, serving you. Um, and so I guess that's, that's the overarching dynamic in a lot of these theories. Uh, but the question is, what are these constraints? How does, how does a neural system support and organize itself into this way that is sort of it? How does it filter things out? And why is it that these certain kinds of molecules seem to break those filters apart? And that's that's kind of what everyone's after right now. And um, those are the kinds of questions that, that we're asking in, in Jessica's lab. And and uh, that's the kind of thing that's being talked about. And it isn't different from what they were talking about in the 30s in mescaline research and some things they were talking about, in the especially in the uh, 50s and 60s with uh Huxley and so on. This reminds me again, like because of the, the hill climbing algorithm component, you know, like everything's seeking its, its best case scenario, which is sort of the opposite of this sort of like the entropic brain model of like everything seeking its, it's like uh, most efficient yeah. energy state entropy production. And so that there is, I learned about, the, there's a woman, uh, Michelle Gervon, who I saw give a talk in Santa Fe a few months ago on what she called reservoir computing, which is machine learning algorithms have a problem with the same thing that people do, right? Which is fitting to, like, developing expectations that then no longer apply to the data that you're receiving. Like, you've trained, you've got a training data set, and you've developed a bad theory 
of the world on that set and you're not open to adapt, you know, adjusting it. And so what they found is essentially like a form of psychedelics for machines, which is to, which is to, what's the the, like plasticity inducing it's, it's it's it's, it's to, uh, she's like, all you have to do is take a, a natural source of chaos. This could be a camera on a bucket of water that you then kick and then the camera camera records the waves and then uses the chaotic input to add noise to the, the machine algorithm. learning algorithm. Yeah. So it's this is how you knock the the uh, algorithm out of a bad injunction. It's basically like I, I guess the equivalent would be that that allegory about the animal falls into the hole. This is a terrible storytelling example here, but falls into the hole and then like can't get out and then finds a way to oh, ask his friend to just pour water or, or like pour sand. And he's like, Oh, you're, I'm going to bury you. But you know, you, you lift the guy out of the hole by just filling the hole. Is that the hill climbing algorithm? Sort of. Yeah. Well, it's no, it's like how you adjust the landscape so yeah. that you don't have to climb you know, because you're stuck at a local. So you introduce just enough chaos or disorder into the algorithm to get it out of kind of a, a bad loop that it's in. Yeah, and and doing. But then this, all the other data coming in is essentially the same. What they found is that by by doing this, they were able to train weather prediction algorithms to like two or three times their efficacy right. in terms of like the length of the forecast. And that's because it interrupts their bias, right? I mean, bias is like one of this these golden concepts, holy grail things in machine learning, because they need some kind of bias to do things. Uh, otherwise, they're just flailing and not doing anything. But then when they get the wrong kind of bias, and then they're doing the wrong thing. And so the idea is to like introduce something to disrupt that bias. And that essentially would be psychedelics for machines. But it works the opposite way, too, yeah. which is there's a sticker that people have developed for spoofing facial recognition algorithms. Oh yeah, I've seen those. You know, it looks like a trippy. It looks kind of like the uh, the official psychedelic society of Minneapolis sticker. That's why they have that actually. Yeah, so you don't get facial just recognition. Just slap one right here next time you go to China or you know. Um, but they or a music festival. God help us. These uh, these stickers. They found that like if you threw one of these trippy, it looks like the output of a deep dream kind of thing. It looks trippy that if you put one of these in the image, then suddenly a a machine vision algorithm that like 99% gets banana. Like I'm able to identify this as a banana. Suddenly it's like, that's a toaster. And, and so there's, this is, this is the cautionary tale, right? Which is, do they make tattoo versions? Cause it sounds like you have to have some I mean, what are the different types of chaos you can inject into that algorithm? And at what point is there a breaking point where it becomes nonsensical and you're not fixing it? You're actually just kind of making it more confusing and convoluted. Yeah. Well, it's, it's like uh, if it's doing really well, maybe you shouldn't. Like, you know, like breaking point my dad, is 350 micrograms. Yeah, my dad's my dad's like, a, you know, he's he's gotten to a point in his life where, you know, he probably shouldn't take drugs. Right. Like it's 99 percent banana. Like, just leave it. You know, whereas. Uh, those of us who are like stuck on local Optima, like down here, you know, maybe, maybe you should, uh, you know, flood the system with noise a little bit. Well, and it's interesting to think about in that way. You think about um, just underground psychedelic culture and illicit users. Um, I'm sure many of us know people who 
have continuously used large amounts of psychedelics. And the types of, I guess, personality traits and behavior traits that might come from that do have this sort of almost too much chaos kind of feel to them. Not, obviously that's not guaranteed, but this is, this, this makes sense. Like that this is uh, consistent, I think, with, with the idea that there's the right amount of instability to uh, prompt the system to reconstruct its biases or to adopt a new uh, set of biases to better accommodate the input that it's receiving. But there's, uh, like Jessica mentioned, there's a certain amount that might just tear it apart altogether and just break it down completely so it can't get its bearings. So I want to I want to take a hairpin turn here and ask about the research that you two are about to embark upon. Uh, Jess, if you could hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, like what are we what do we have was, to look forward I'm to? I'm not I'm not saying hopefully it will happen. <laughs> I usually if I want to do something, I don't stop until until it's done um, or on its way. So the research we're going to be doing is a mechanistic neuroscience study in healthy controls where we're going to be looking at a very well-established um, surround suppression task. It's used a lot in visual neuroscience, basic visual neuroscience research to understand visual perception. Explain surround suppression. Please. Well, I want to pass that over to Link because okay. this is sort of his his project. Yeah, so her. surround suppression is a way of, of measuring the, the brain and the visual sp- system's response to context. Um, and so it's it's very simple, the task. It's on a screen and there's like a line and you're, you're the subject. You're supposed to look at the line and then you report what the line looks like with a button press as to like answering a question. And then also, um, there's EEG measuring your brain activity to seeing the line. So when you see the line, there's a certain response in your brain and you have a certain judgment about how that line looks. Then when you surround the line with a bunch of other lines, this is the surround part. It actually suppresses your ability to correctly see that line or you see it differently. It either looks less intense and in fact, or usually looks less intense when you have a surround around it. And it's just, it's, it's almost kind of like in, in a very simplified version of where's Waldo, where there's a lot of stripes around Waldo and you just don't really see them. Um, but there's, there's a million of these examples, uh, even in, uh, music, for example. Um, if I'm just like, rapping on a snare drum up here, just a snare drum. And that sounds pretty intense. But if the snare drum is integrated into this beautiful riff and groove, then you might not even notice that it, that there's a snare drum hitting there. Um, so the context of stimuli actually suppresses the response to that stimuli. Uh, and it's a way to get a very simplified picture of how brains respond to context. And we think that context is less influential on the target stimuli under psychedelic. And that's, that might seem a little counterintuitive. I saw a question hand. Yes. Could you restate that question for the record? Yeah. Is there, is there a component of language in this in terms of like being able to re, to, to say what the thing looks like or, or, I see. Yeah. So the question is about, um, the linguistic cultural context that the, the subject is in and how does that influence the way that they respond? I'm pretty sure that this specific task has been found to be culturally, to static across cultures and, and most 
neurotypical human beings respond, and animals, in fact, respond in similar ways to this. But it is there. There could be a, a similar study with language, actually, uh, where you could you could have a a word or a letter, and then there's a certain brain response and a certain judgment about the word, and then um, a bunch of surrounding words, and, it's, and the meaning of it is different. Obviously, context changes a lot. Um, but in terms of psychedelics, what, well, why would we think that there's less influence of context? And it goes back to the constraint theory where there's a set of constraints. That's your context. It's your model of the world. Your brain has this con- filter or set of constraints that it's basically its model of what's what the world is and, and of what's out there and what who you are and, and what your perceptions are. And that model becomes destabilized by the psychedelic molecules. And we think that that will show up even in just showing basic lines around a center line, that that will be able to see that effect in the so it's not like this earth-shattering conclusion, like, wow, but it is a start at getting at the influence of context on the processing of, of input uh, under psychedelic versus in a waking state. And this is also a task that's used a lot in people with schizophrenia to try and understand their visual distortions. Yeah, they found differences in schizophrenic populations with this uh, effect. And, uh, and also there's been studies with the nicotine, caffeine, and alcohol and how they change it. So we'd be contributing to that literature of how different neuromodulator molecules from di- that hit different systems. Um, this would be the first one in the serotonin system. So the acetylcholinergic acetylcholine system, that's caffeine and nicotine. And then the GABA system is alcohol and um, some other drugs that they've used for that to see and it's it, a lot of it is like we've got this task and we've got an effect and it's a fairly universal, well accepted task that people study perception with. And uh, let's do that task on drugs, and <laughs> and then and then you can actually learn about what the systems that the drugs are affecting, about what their purpose is in the brain. And that's that's actually a lot of my motivation to doing this kind of research. It's not necessarily because I think psychedelics are super fascinating, but I do. But it's it's actually because the brain itself is super fascinating. Normal waking perception is really fascinating, and you can perturb it and learn about it by perturbing it. Like, which, if we push this button, then how does it change? And then that can sort of help us learn about the brain in general. I'm reminded of that video. I imagine most of you have seen uh, where it's an older uh, video where they they give spiders different drugs and observe the webs that mm-hmm. they make. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting here thinking, like, damn, if if the spiders had taken the same thing I had, I may never have found my way out of that clearing. Right? <laughs> like this, or maybe you wouldn't have never been trapped in there in the first place. <laughs> Thoughts, folks. I don't usually get to ask people uh, to contribute. Yeah, I'll leave that to Jessica. Yeah, so it's not something we're incorporating in our study design, but it is genetic factors. Sorry, I'll repeat the question. So the question was, how are we incorporating genetic factors into our study design? And um, in terms of metabolizing different drugs, is that accurate? Um, so there's this new field called pharmacogenomics that's been emerging where you you basically run a genetic screen on somebody and look for predispositions for certain enzymes, like ones that will process psychotropic drugs. And so you can get a whole panel of like what how much drug you need to give somebody so they'll have the targeted response. And that's different depending on whether they have these predispositions for these different 
uh, those are called SNPs, small nucleotide polymorphisms. Um, and so you can do this screen at intake, but um, it's not something we're incorporating at the early stage for the study, but it is something I really want to because, you know, how hard somebody trips depends on how much they're actually getting and how much they're actually metabolizing what's actually getting bound to the receptors. Um, and so we might have to take that into account when we're thinking about how much to dose people and what that means in terms of their subjective experience and, and um, any of the event related potentials we're measuring with the EEG and if that is impacted by whether they metabolize it high or low. Um, but it's a little costly at this point. So this is a small pilot study, but it is something we've been talking about internally to incorporate. I think a lot of the genomics is uh, the pharmacogenomics is animal based. So there's still probably not a lot of data on psychedelics of how they well, metabolize. It, it doesn't matter with psychedelics because there's certain classes of drugs that are metabolized with certain enzymes that you can map in somebody. Yeah. Um, and that's actually been pretty well worked out. In so humans. as long as you and know, FDA yeah. has approved some pharmacogenomic screens, actually Minnesota is kind of on the cutting edge of this in terms of incorporating this into when somebody goes to the doctor, they do one of these health screens they do for pharmacogenomics and then they can sure. tailor their treatment plan according to how they're going to metabolize the drugs. And that way they can iterate faster through what they need to give somebody without testing it on how do you respond when I give you this drug? They can actually do a screen and say, this is how you're going to respond. I'm therefore not going to give you that drug. I'm going to give you this drug at this dose. Or, yeah, here's a different dose. Yeah. You don't get as much. Sorry, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder I wonder if we could – I'm really curious, casting back into history, about whether we could do – we could run SNPs on Dennis and Terrence and figure out why Dennis tripped for two weeks you know why, like the the experiment. Give a, little, give a little bit of context to that. Yeah. So, so for those of you who do not know, um, fit great moments in, in psychedelics history. Uh, Lore. Yes. The the uh, the McKenna brothers were down in the Amazon. Uh, what like like the 1969. Sometimes the Lacherera. Yes. Yeah. And uh, there was you know they they went down uh, looking for a DMT snuff. And this is all recorded in, in the book, True Hallucinations. And also, um, Dennis did a book reading of this at our um, farewell symposium where he actually read from his Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss and um, kind of touched on that trip. Oh, yeah. So so uh, what they found instead were ayahuasca and psilocybin mushrooms. And through some sort of insane tripper fantasy, Never they decided that, that they were going to, quote unquote, eminentize the eschaton, uh, that they had found a way to, between, like in the altered state of consciousness, uh, that they were, they were going to sing a, uh, a, a, an alchemical, like, object into being that was going to be, uh, I think this is what, what, uh, William Irwin Thompson and others would call misplaced concreteness. Where they, the nature of the psychedelic experience is to fold over categories of self and other and reveal them as, as they are in some sense. Again, Richard Doyle calls this ecodelics, um, with a sensitivity to the way that, the way that we talk about these things program the experiences of themselves. But, uh, in their case, they really thought that they were going to make a physical object out of the mind and that this would bring upon a new world age. And, uh, Doing the experiment, uh, everyone but Dennis McKenna came down after an, a handful of hours, and then Dennis did not. And so it's this question of like, uh, was that because you know he had uh, you know his I don't know what the, the his enzymes weren't quite yeah that you know his brain doesn't same. process serotonin in the same way or whatever I don't know. You had a question. How do you think psychedelics could be used to 
So can I re- just to restate the question, okay. it seems as though civilizations go through a kind of eruption of novelty right before collapse. Yeah, like a process. And the question is, like, might psychedelics be useful to us in this moment? To yeah, that's a great question. I think, I mean, I think psychedelics could help because maybe you could prevent the collapse because people aren't going to see it as this horribly destabilizing thing. They've, they're kind of ready for that upheaval of, of, you know, massive amounts of novelty. If it's just going to start flooding in and it's just, it's more tech and more change and more things. And, and, and the more able you are to kind of handle that and navigate that without letting it, without completely succumbing to it and just giving up or, or going crazy. I think that's where psychedelics could help with that sort of cognitive flexibility and adaptability. Um, but again, I think there is kind of a threshold that if it's too much, I don't think it's going to matter how adaptable we are. At some point, the system is kind of at max capacity for handling incoming stimuli. So we'll see. I think it would it would prepare us better, for sure. But it depends on the level of, of change that's coming. You think you want to jump on that? Um, no. Okay. <laughs> here's, here's a thought from the Santa Fe Institute where the professor Jeffrey West just wrote a book called scale. Uh, some of you may have known that it was a pretty popular book where he's, he's looking at the scaling laws in physics as applied to organisms and then also to uh, cities and to companies. And so it, it's these, these questions of, you know, as an, as a mammal with the essentially the same anatomy, a mouse and an elephant, right? And they both have a 1.5 billion heartbeats over the course of their lifespan, but the elephant is like a million times more massive with a metabolism like 10,000 times as energy intensive. And, you know, because of its size, it develops more cancer. It requires more cancer genes, like anti-cancer genes. And there's, there's all of these things that scale at different rates as the organism scales up. So his work with cities shows that cities are, are social reactors and that because like we were talking about earlier about the urban raccoons, like there's the more interactions that people are having in a city in social dimension of a city scales faster than the city itself. So a city with twice as many people has 115% as many patents, crimes and transmitted diseases as a city half of its size per capita. And so what happens, like it also, it also speeds up because in order to move, to push resources through its networks as efficiently as a smaller city requires more energy. It's not a linear thing, but what he found is as any network grows, it reaches these crisis points where it has to innovate its way out of the crisis. And so we're at this like scalloped, the big J curve that everyone's used to seeing from Silicon Valley, techno, singularitarian types, you know, the, this notion that we're approaching this, this line, the singularity, it's not actually a J, it's a scalloped J. It's like a fractal series of smaller and faster J hockey sticks as we, we continue to innovate our way out of crisis faster and faster. So I think that your question speaks to uh, we were talking about earlier about evolvability and like, why is it that cultures end up in a novelty phase right before collapse? It's not that it's, I don't think it's the novelty phase causes the collapse. I think it's that the maturity of that society is a crisis and that the novelty phase is a way for that, you know, like if we zoom out and look at it as a bacterial culture, then it's, it's all of these 
sort of desperate flailing mutations seeking some sort of solution to the conditions of that late civilization. And so I don't know, frankly, um, I think, I, I think what I mean is I don't know if psychedelics offer in any kind of simple way, a way for us to innovate our way out of it. I mean, clearly at some level they are useful to like, you know, the microdose famously is useful to like this kind of uh, creative catalysis. But I think that the conversation planted on psychedelic therapy, specifically related to trauma therapy and psychedelic integration work is actually probably where, where most of the weight needs to be right now, because we're living through an era of extraordinary novelty already. Like we don't need to drive psychedelics into this. I don't think to make things more novel, except to the degree that they allow us to liberate ourselves from uh, poorly adapted framings, you know, and that, that, that most like, you know, I've been part of a lot of uh, communities over the years that really thought that they were like changing the world. You know, that that's like, we're going to do that. We're out ahead of the curve. We're the evolutionaries. And frankly, you know, after 10 plus years of that, I'm really sick of it because it's clear that like the world is changing way damn fast. It's going to change of its own accord. And the people who claim to be visionaries claim to see where we are in the big picture of history ought to be helping people understand and organize and embody and live those changes and not just throwing more gasoline on the fire. So, I mean, that's my conservative opinion about this. Oh, I just, I had a thought as you were talking about um, the system is either creating more novelty as sort of this like last ditch effort for survival um, versus like it being sort of a genuine aspect of like the peak of that civilization, but then it becomes too complex to actually integrate and then it collapses and sort of like the, the, the former of that, of thinking that, you know, people are maybe desperately clinging for novelty and that's more of a symptom. And then they end up causing their own collapse by trying to do all this erroneous novel things. Uh, and then it just puts too much noise into the system. And then it, and then that's what it collapses rather than people not being able to handle the amount of change. It's like they're trying to force it. I don't know. Mm. It was kind of like this, it kind of was like a chicken and the egg kind of thought. Yeah, like, I, I had don't a, know. I had a similar thought about perhaps the novelty is the is not just what precedes the collapse, but the novelty is the beginning of the collapse. And it actually made me compare cultures or societies. Like uh, the question came from with the brain, and I thought about when the brain collapses, meaning when you go and start to fall asleep. There's this hypnagogic imagery which can be very novel. And actually, there's a lot of scientific progress and artistic progress that's happened in that near sleep state. Um, so probably of no relevance to society and its collapse. But it made me think of the brain as a system like uh, societies are. And perhaps this novelty stage is like the hypnagogic imagery before Maybe we need to dream before, our way before out of lights are out. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We can all start lucid dreaming and yeah, exactly. create a then new world. We have the Zen or space just don't over go to here sleep. for those who want to f- fall asleep at 6 p.m. and and help us find our way out of this building. <laughs> I think I think that's good um, though to think about uh, a brain or or a human mind or organism or any mind or organism uh, with 
sort of parallels to other systems and system dynamics. Obviously, Santa Fe Institute is kind of all about system dynamics. But then also your own first-person experience of your day, right? The system dynamics of that, of your emotional states, your ups and downs, your, your waking up, your different tired states, your various experiences that you have throughout the day, and just reflecting on those as like yourself as a system, and then that there's a certain dynamic and there's these, what, attractors that, you know, you sort of move toward or away from. I just find it to be a useful way of reflecting on things. I'm on the verge of like repeating the same bad habits, and I don't have this experience of like being... Um, like the stress, when the stress comes on in my day to day, I don't go, oh, I want to seek out novelty now. So I just like my first person experience isn't like, as you say, the stress comes on and then it like kickstarts some novelty seeking process. But I wonder, but then I also know that I've had like, you know, traumatic experiences in the past that seem to like put me into a bad habit. And so I don't know, maybe there's something to be said of like, when does this novelty seeking get kicked in? Because I imagine many of us have experiences where oh, yeah, I was stressed out, and I all of a sudden didn't start seeking about a bunch of novel new information. I just maybe I reverted my same bad habit. I was just stuck. or So is that is that clear? I'm trying to think how to summarize the question, um, whether novelty seeking can be bad. Well, no, I'm just, I'm just wondering. I don't have this experience where, as it sounds like Michael's articulating, that the novelty process gets kicked on as a byproduct of stress. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I, I would just imagine a lot of us have this experience where that does not happen. I think it's the opposite a lot of times. Right. Um, so that's what I'm curious about. Yeah, I mean, it feels like it, it is the opposite. And in fact, when you have too much novelty from a traumatic or shocking experience in your life, a death or some kind of a dr- drastic dramatic experience, a lot of times what gets you back on track is to reduce the number, the amount of novelty, get your routine going. I mean, simple things, simple habits, simple to focus on and that that is that is one strategy that people have for sure in those states so yeah the and I, and I actually it feels like the introduction of a lot of novelty in a life that's already uncertain and has chaos is not good or is not not natural to go towards but that that being said in a like we said in a state where there's a lot of ruts and where the problem is that there's a lot of cycling thoughts and cycling emotions and things that are sort of stuck then introducing new experiences whether it's psychedelics or travel or meeting different people or checking out different music or art can sort of break the so i guess it it depends on what the what the ailment is in your mental experience whether whether introducing more novelty would be uh, good or not for that well, and just to touch on this idea of novelty, what, what I'm thinking about in that is just kind of opening up the brain to being more adaptable. And novelty promotes that, and then it gives you the opportunity to try and integrate something new into that while the system is sort of in this, like, priming, tuning state. Um, but there is, there is maladaptive plasticity where you then learn, like, a bad pattern. That's essentially what addiction is. You know, it's this maladaptive learning that this thing that gives you a reward is good for you. And in turn, it's not. Um, and, and it could be good to sort of reduce uncomfortable things and novel things transiently if it feels like it's too complicated. Um, but ultimately that's just sort of keeping the person at baseline 
Whereas like once they feel stable enough, then maybe slowly start introducing more and more novel experiences that are going to promote plasticity and get that brain into a state where it can then learn a new way of being that is more healthy for the whole system. Um, And that's kind of, you know, individualized based on the person and the disorder and what the complication is and what is, what is the thing that works for you that induces that sense of um, connectedness and, and hope and drive and motivation to learn this new thing that you want to learn. You know, like we always talk about like integration is, it's hard because it forces you to do things that are uncomfortable and it feels like exercise, you know, but ultimately you're, you're trying to retrain this pattern in a way that works for you. And the opposite can happen where you're training it in a bad way. And so I feel like kind of descending into old habits is that maladaptive where like it's comfortable and it's like a band aid and it helps fix it, but ultimately it's not good. Um, so it's, you know, trying to find a balance that works for you. I'm reminded of, um, some developmental theories. Uh, so, so Robert Keegan and Claire Graves and spiral dynamics and that kind of stuff where at one developmental level or layer, when there's a crisis or when there, when it, the tools of that layer just aren't working anymore, uh, the very first thing that the individual does is go back to the layer below or prior and to try to use those tools to cope. So um, this would be the retreat into fundamentalism in the modern world. Sure. That sure. kind of thing. Yeah. Right. So you moved from this like rigid religious fundamentalism into this rational scientific mode and then shit hits the fan and your rational scientific mode isn't working. So rather than making the leap to whatever's after that in the developmental trajectory, you go back to the the religious fundamentalism that you came from before. And this, so, but this, this example can be individualized or brought down to the individual in terms of like, if you had some bad habits that you've overcome in your next developmental level, and then there's some adversity in your life. And rather than moving to, to the next solution, that's like, uh, after that, you go back to the other habits or patterns that have worked before. Like, you call up the X. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or relapse. I miss you. Yeah. That's yeah, actually relapse. that is the drunk dial, right? Yeah. You're you're stressing you're stressing your brain to the point that it seeks a familiar. It's seeking comfort. It's seeking yeah, what's known, and, and that's not always what's best for us. But it feels good, so it's easy mm-hmm. to lean on that and. Well, yeah, and, and, and bringing that back to psychedelics, actually, I, I, I've seen this, talk about Arrowhead, I've seen this a lot in descriptions of like high dose psychedelic sessions where people basically, when they start to come down, they're basically like kissing the floor, like, thank you, thank you, this is, this is back to reality, like this is, I don't know if anyone's ever had this feeling before, but we're like, God, I just want to have my normal stupid thoughts that I have every day. You know, I just want to be bored and eating some ice cream right now. This is just too much novelty, too much difference. And so it goes back to this sort of whole theme that we've had throughout the entire thing of this pendulum back from, from stability and rigidity and on the one hand and novelty and uncertainty on the other hand. It's a very interesting dynamic. I've never enjoyed beer more at the end of a mushroom trip. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, no. God, it's good to be human <laughs> instead of an alien or whatever the hell. Yeah, that whatever was. that yeah. was. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Oh. Are we are we incriminating you, Dr. Jessica Nielsen? No, I'm, I'm open anything. about my, my, my 
psychedelic use. Um, we have a couple questions, Christopher. Yeah, those are those are some really great points, and I think about freedom in terms of imagination. So when in in a psychedelic state, when we talk about novelty, that can actually be just as as simple in phenomenological terms and in, in, in experiential terms. It could be just as simple as I have a wild imagination. I can imagine things that I w- wasn't free to imagine before, and so it also goes back to this constraint process that brains seem to be fond of <laughs> and the constraints uh limit uh which makes less free to imagine or perceive or to feel a variety of things and in, in what that says for uh societal or sociological freedom uh i'm not sure what what to make of that but i think that is a good point um but yeah too much freedom Freedom isn't free. Well, there's there's also the, you know, Rudolf Steiner's Luciferic and Aramonic poles, right? So, like, Luciferic is the force towards oneness and ultimate creative possibility. You know, it's what most people would associate with divinity is, you know, this ultimate freedom, ultimate creativity, ultimate unity. And then the Aramonic force is the decay of life. It's it's the collapse the breaking of the one into the many, you know, if you think about like vasculature, you know, like the way that fractal systems grow, that that's in some sense, that's a, that's a, a, a luciferic principle articulating through an harmonic system. Like LSD induces luciferic experiences in people. Alcohol induces harmonic experiences, you know, the, the fragmenting of subjectivity into psychological submodules and like the identity becoming a smaller and smaller piece of the full thing, right? And, and Steiner's whole point was that these two things have to be balanced, you know, that, that one to the exclusion of the other, ultimate creativity with no constraints, like any artist will tell you the horror of an empty page. You know, before you've made a single stroke that sort of determines the next stroke, you know, like it, analysis paralysis or whatever, you know, that there's this this piece to it. I think ultimately it's just you're right that there's we are afraid of being more free, more free. Um, and and yet uh, I think like the step one of becoming more free is actually parameterizing the system. Is actually understanding where the boundaries exist. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like yeah, it's it's. I just want to jump in yeah. for a minute because I think that that's great. The constraints or the parameters on a system enable it to do things in a way that it couldn't without them. And and a lot and, and it's weird because a constraint actually is enabling, but it's also limiting at the same time. Um, <laughs> so it's kind of a paradox in that way, but. Uh, back to the freedom, freedom can be incredibly terrifying because if you have like all of these choices and you could, you could make any, the possibilities are limitless that can put you in a position where it's like, well, the possibilities are limitless. I can't do anything. I don't know where to go from there. And so having some limitations and constraints in some way, yeah, they can both enable you to do things and prevent you from being able to make progress at the same time. So that could also be why this, this whole like snow globe shake things up effect temporarily is so valuable because it, it works, uh, to both, uh, removing constraints and then putting them back and reforming them 
that is a nice, I think, picture of how it's useful and how it can be useful to, to humans and other animals and machines like we talked about. We've got like three minutes left on this conversation. So I want to like, let's. Well, the only comment I had on that is, um, you know, I think for the most part, most people tend to avoid being uncomfortable at all costs. Mm-hmm. And that includes being in spaces where they're exposed to new things. And even though that's exciting for some people, I think most people tend to try and shy away from that. So it's really kind of getting at some fundamental aspect of human nature of our inability to break through that discomfort to better ourselves. You know, there's this, um, meme of like all these people waiting in line to get the quick fix pill versus, you know, the other line that's like, okay, who wants, who wants change? I want change. Who wants to change? And then everybody just kind of stays silent. So it's, you know, it's a lot of work. And I think ultimately, I I mean, I'm hoping psychedelics give people the motivation and the adaptability to do that kind of work. But ultimately I think most people without having that experience aren't going to be comfortable with discomfort and novelty and unrestricted consciousness and freedom and it's a fun space to play in but it can also be very disorienting and terrifying and and on that note i want to congratulate all of you for being the mushroom squirrel running through a busy intersection with this event because uh, i realized that it it takes a little bit of courage to stake 20 bucks on some random asshole from (laughs) you know you've never heard of and come over here on a sunday and have a dance party that like keeps changing. There's Indian food now and face painting. Like what the hell is this thing? It's a psychedelic party. Yes. So anyway, thank you. Thanks, Jessica. Thanks link for being a part of this. Uh, thank you all for being here. And, uh, I've got to run over to the other room and set up to play. Thank you, Michael. A concert. Yeah. Thank you. And just, uh, yeah, so in the middle room, there's some food. It's, it's free. It comes with your ticket. And so just kind of go over there and, um, and then we'll have music set up in the other room and you can kind of just meander back and forth. This is going to be kind of a chill space with some good ambient music and fun lights. We've got some projections happening here. Um, we got a little chill out space over there. And then the other room, we can dance and mingle and get your face painted. And thank you for coming and enjoy the rest of the, the evening. Thanks for listening to Future Fossils. This podcast is a part of the MindPod network, along with numerous other excellent programs. Go to mindpodnetwork.com and subscribe to them all. If you'd like to help support Future Fossils, consider giving this show a five-star iTunes review or sharing it with someone you think might appreciate these conversations. For more episodes, show notes, copious extras, including music, art, the Future Fossils coloring book, and book club, and more, visit patreon.com slash Michael Garfield.